Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today is all about sales. One of the things that early stage companies really struggle with is building up the sales process internally, knowing when to hire a salesperson, even understanding the sales process. You know, if it's a B2B company, how is that different than a B2C company? If it's a B2B2C company or variants of that, where where you need to be optimizing, where you need to be hiring, and how do you need to train people and motivate them to deliver on the targets that you've set out. So with us today, we have David Clayton. David Clayton's a good friend, but he's also a consultant for startups in uh, a process that I'm going to let him talk about more. Um, it's his own company, and he's created a method that helps train startups to really think through their sales process. But as always, we like to start with a little bit about the person behind the mask, if you will. And David, maybe we can start off what you studied in college and what was the first thing you did right afterwards? Okay, so, um, well, thanks for having me, Carlos. Um, so, really um, nice introduction. What, what did I study in college? Um, the answer is bugger all. I didn't go. Uh, so, I think uh, there was a, a pretty clear gap between the grades I was predicted in high school and those which I achieved. And um, I think we can put that down to um, my lack of attendance. Mm. Um, and so it felt probably unfair on my parents to spend all their money on something I'd probably um, then not attend. Mm -hmm. uh, so my, I suppose my, my first kind of steps outside of, um, you know, living with mum and dad and stuff like that was bartending. Um, and um, so I did that in Bristol, uh, down in the southwest of the country here in the UK, and uh, probably thought as a young kid that I was Tom Cruise, throwing glasses around, that kind of thing, and uh, ended up working in a fairly infamous nightclub in Bristol, um, then called Cafe Blue, in the kind of height of um, um, all things house and in, in Bristol, great kind of jungle scene, kind of rummy size and all that kind of thing, um, which um, was a, uh, an interesting uh, introduction to the world of work. Um, now, I suppose where, where I started to get perhaps more adventurous, more serious, was um, I... Uh, picked up a, a copy of um, The Independent, um, which um, probably doesn't exist anymore. Um, and in the back of The Independent, they had a, a list of the 50 best bars in the world. And I was, uh, I suppose, relatively ambitious. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wrote to them all, saying, hey, I'm Dave. I'm pretty good at bartending. I should come bartend for you, or something along those lines. And I was fortunate enough that um, uh, Hotel Ocean, uh, who were, I remember at the time, listed 14th best bar in the world, um, on Ocean Drive, Miami Beach, wrote back to me, kind of young whippersnapper then at kind of 20, saying, yeah, we'll sponsor your visa, mm. come and work for us. And um, that was, um, I suppose, really opened my eyes to sales and customer service. So as you'll, you'll know, Carlos, kind of mm. working service in the States or the, the, the American approach to service is radically different to what you see here in Europe. And um, you're effectively working just for commission. Mm. Um, and... That that was really instructive, and I, I got myself to to a point where I was very fortunate in living a, a beautiful lifestyle. Me and my mates, we would go and work a season in Miami, mm -hmm. bugger off traveling, so go off around the world, run out of money, and then go and work somewhere else where you could make lots of money. So I, I kind of bounced between Sag Harbor in the Hamptons mm -hmm. and uh, Miami. Did that for a number of years. Um, during my travels, I met my now wife, who's from Brazil. Uh, oddly, I met her in Beijing after a buddy of mine and I had uh, taken the Trans-Siberian Express. Uh, we'd been kind of through Mongolia and so forth, having a wonderful time. 
met a girl, that changes everything, mm. end up in Brazil. And what you find is if you, you get to that point, you think, bloody hell, you can't really hang on to having any kind of relationship if you're bartending and finishing work at four or five in the morning and then think it's a good idea to get breakfast and those kind of things before eventually coming home. Yeah. Um, so cut a long story short, um, that made I had, meant I had to probably get a proper job. Mm. Um, fortunately, uh, along my travels, I had met um, a good friend now called Ida, um, and she worked in um, something called Brand Partnerships um, at The Guardian. Uh, the Guardian newspaper here here in the UK, and um, um, what what she did was um, say, "Come on, you should really test your metal here in sales. You'd, you'd be all right at that. You know, it's effectively what you do." So I, I met, a, as you do in the world of media, a couple of kind of senior directors from the Guardian in a pub over lunch, over a few pints. I think they decided that you know I could you know, speak clearly, and they'd give me a give me a shot, and that that's how I got into sales. Mm. And I whilst all stories are probably quite different. I don't think there are very many people who said, mummy, I want to be a salesman. Doesn't really happen. You kind of fall into it. And, and that's not to say that um, it's not a prof- profession I'm incredibly proud of. It's not something I don't love. I absolutely do. But, you know, very few people say that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, but in my view, it's the most exciting thing you can do in business. Mm. So that got me there. That got me to the Guardian. So what was it like there? Was was it what uh, was the transition easy, or were you just? I mean, I have this image now of like you like to, totally like outperforming everybody, but uh, maybe you didn't. Um, that's that's very generous and charitable of you, Carlos. Um, to some degree, yes. Um, but that was also because I kind of started at the lowest rung on the ladder. Mm. So having gone through what I've been through, which is um, you know fairly autonomous. Find, find ways to do what you want in life. Mm. Um, arriving in an office environment where it was set, you start work at this time, you go at lunch at this time, you finish at this time, mm. uh, you're expected to do so many calls. Mm. This was very bizarre to me. Um, and I was much more interested in, well, you know, what am I trying to achieve here? And it, what the great thing about sales is there's a number, you know, you, you hit the number. And so um, I kind of wasn't really interested in when I started or when I finished or all that kind of stuff. I was just interested in the number. Um, but to put it into context, you know, I was calling up, you know, Farmer Giles who had his asparagus to sell or somebody who was selling, you know, conservatory doors mm-hmm. um, and asking them to, you know, buy advertisements in, at the time, what would have been the Observer magazine and the Guardian Weekend magazine. You know, this is um, a good place to cut your teeth dealing with small business owners who don't want your phone call um, and don't really want to part with their cash. So maybe this is a good this is a good um, beginning to debunking myths about sales. You must have, to some extent, been improvising, but to some extent, perhaps researching and learning from other people uh, who were in the sales team. What were the methods that you were using then that you might almost consider cringeworthy right now, but that were part of kind of maybe the the established norm of what a salesperson needed to be doing to closing deals? Really good question. So the, the question around methods is an interesting one insofar as, you know, there was no training, you know, on the phone, make it happen, call these people, sell some ads. Um, and if I kind of look back on that now, what, what that meant, not just at that point, but again, you know, still a year or two down uh, along the line, is you're pushing product. You're, you're calling somebody up and you are already 
you know, suggesting an advertisement, a series of advertisement, um, which goes against the grain of any kind of thoughtful approach to sales, which is much more about you know, taking an interest in the client, understanding what their requirements might be, sharing an insight with them. But if you are selling something that's much more commoditized, like an advertisement, you're selling it direct to one person, you know, it still works to be you know, fairly um, blunt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so in, the, in those initial days, certainly it was unsophisticated, but um, what it... Describe blunt. What do you mean by blunt? Um, like you, I mean, can you reenact that call? Just to, just like, oh, like, Carl, you don't do that to me, mate. Um, <laughs> uh, so I suppose if you're, calling, if you're calling somebody up and they aren't expecting your call, you need to very quickly get to a point where it's of some interest to them. For somebody calling from The Guardian or an established brand, you get that to some degree just through the name. For a startup, for example, um, you have to work a little bit harder for it. So you have to immediately you know, share something of interest to somebody. And you know, that will come through you know, having an insight about some sense of value you'll bring to them. But in this instance, if you're just calling up and you're saying, Look, you know, I, I see that you happen to advertise in you know, the mail on Sunday, or uh, I noticed you advertised last year, or I understand that you know um, you sell wine. It's getting to Christmas. Perhaps you want to advertise some wine. Um, it's a fairly transactional, um, whilst not thoughtless. It's probably the sales that most people imagine sales to be. Mm-hmm. I have a thing. Would you like a thing? Okay, bye. Mm-hmm. Which. Um, definitely isn't what anybody should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, sales is, or should be, much more about um, the creation of value, that the interaction with that salesperson um, is in itself educational, instructive, useful. Whether you then go on to do business with that person or not, you think, oh, actually, that last half an hour mm-hmm. I spent on the phone with that person or the meeting I had with that person, I learned something, I got something from that. And that that's the type of selling that you have to really be performing if yeah. you're going to be selling something new or unfamiliar. So, I mean, I, I want to keep on, on, on pushing on this element of cold calling and, mm-hmm. and kind of the cold calling you need to do. And now you alluded to the fact that you had this brand mm-hmm. and as that brand, it enabled you to propose certain things. You know? Yeah. I noticed that you have this ad. I am from this brand, trusted brand. Mm. Will you consider the following? When you look at startups that have to do cold calling, And if you set the bar at, you need to leave somebody inspired, educated, whatever, you said that a second ago, how do you manage to do that whilst not having the brand to engage with any level of authority about your ability to like instruct or advise, and yet also have to fight against ADD on the phone, as well as maybe a little bit of aggro, to be frank, for like the fact that you just interrupted their day. So I think you mentioned authority there, and that's the key point. You need to be able to create authority and credibility quick. Um, so let me let me give you an example of how, how you might do that. So if I go back to um, my, my days at The Guardian, a little bit further on. Um, so a few years later when I was heading up everything we did in kind of media and technology, what I would do is I would go and speak to somebody within the building who had more credibility or authority than me. So I could borrow theirs effectively. So an example would be I'd go and sit down with um, my editorial colleague, Jemima Kish, 
She at the time was uh, a technology reporter. Now she's out in San Francisco heading up kind of, the, I think she's the head of technology now for The Guardian. And say, what do you want to write? What can't you do now? You know, effectively, how can I help you do something? And I'd ask, you know, who's trying to pitch you? What's in your inbox? So all journalists are just inundated with kind of PR requests. And so I'd take that sense, that information from her, and then I'd push it back out to market. An example would be, um, we saw, this is years ago now, that she was getting a bunch of press releases um, about an app store called GetJar. And so this is interesting thing. All right, well, if these people are, you know, paying for a PR agency and they're, they're trying to reach the Guardian, let's go to them, not to the PR agency, but to the person who is quoted in the release. So, you know, CEO of GetJar uh, over in you know, Silicon Valley, whatever. And so I get myself on the phone to him or I kind of reach out over email first because of kind of time differences. And by using that authority, Jemiah McKish and I, and this is where you kind of embellish the truth a little bit, you know, Jemiah and I were talking, we're interested in doing something in this space. You know, the Guardian's interested in covering apps more. We noticed that actually you sent us a few press releases about that. It'd be great to have a chat about what you think is going on in this area. So at this point, I'm sending out what um, you might call like a, a minimal viable pitch. I'm not sending out like a fully formed idea. We want to do X. We have a product. Do you want the product? Yes or no? I'm saying we're thinking of doing something a bit like X. And you, you know that that X is incredibly valuable to that person. And so, of course, he engages and says, yeah, it'd be fantastic if, you know, there was more coverage in that area. And then you're saying, all right, well, so what could that look like? What could it feel like? And you're co-creating what a solution might be with the person who's never spoken to you before. But your credibility comes from you've shared some ideas with them that they've put out. So mm -hmm. in their press release, they'd have said, I don't know, something about um, people need to be more educated about apps, where to get them, whatever it was mm. at the time. And we're saying, you know, we, we happen to think that people, and you're just playing it back to them, obviously with a different tone, with mm. a different kind of thought process. And that creates alignment and that creates credibility and authority. And most importantly, they're already co-creating a potential solution. Mm. So that first bit of credibility comes from borrowing some from, in this instance, Jemima, but you don't have to do that internally. If you're a startup, you can get that from within the market. Uh, an example would be just Google. Yeah, if you're going to pitch a, a bunch of airlines, for example, mm -hmm. you might think, right. So I was um, helping somebody the other day and um, you know, he had an insight that his, um, his app would be of interest to airlines. So you find a bit of insight about what are the trends in the airline industry. If you Google trends 2016 airline industry or any industry, you'll go straight to a page from somebody smart like Bain or PwC or something like that or McKinsey. Look at the executive summary and think, you know, it, where's our angle? And then you, you get in touch with somebody and say, I just want to run something by you, Carlos. Um, we, we understand that, I don't know, the, uh, the, Funding in Europe um, is I don't know over, over, oversubscribed now. You know there are too many options for founders. It's really hard for them to know who to go with. Um, we're interested in kind of your your point of view on this area. You know, do you think there's any truth in that? And already you're probably going to engage. And at that point you're saying, well, interestingly, some other people who run uh, early stage funds tell us, and then we haven't spoken to anybody, or we mm. may have spoken to one or two people before you. Uh, that the ways in which they're differentiating themselves or dealing with this are A, B, and C. 
do you broadly see that as a solution yeah. to you know how seed camp can stand out or would you yeah. describe it differently and now you're already telling me what your objectives are, are yeah. in this area so the, you know that i'm going to call that the payload of the message right like the, the the value within the message but for startups that are kind of trying to figure out their very early stages of cold calling pipeline mm. um one of the things is not just the payload, but the like the literally the first three seconds. And if you look at the way email introductions are made these days that are most effective, they're the ones that obviously come from somebody else as a third party introducing you. Uh, second to that are the ones where there's a, a validator in the first paragraph, like, dear, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, I saw that you wrote a blog, past, a blog post about this, or I, uh, I noticed that you made investments in this, right? But on the call, it's slightly different because on the call, you've got tone, you've got voice, you've got accent, you've got a lot of things that are playing in your favor or disfavor. And I'm just curious, like, what is the, before you get to talking about the payload, which is all this work that you've done, you've got about like three seconds to say, hi, my name is, I'm representing such and such organization and quickly validating yourself so you're not hung up on what, what, what's your, what, what's your spin on that? What's, what, how do you believe that you should tackle that? So you have to be incredibly succinct. So. As you say, hi, it's Carlos from Seed Camp. I wanted to speak to you about X. Do you have two minutes? And immediately you're asking for confirmation for do you have two minutes? Mm. You're getting permission. And you will get one of a number of replies. One which is, no, oh, actually, I'm, I'm on the way to a meeting right now. Um, go on, you say it's two minutes. What's this about type of thing? Um, or, um, yeah, okay, yeah, I've just got two minutes. But, you know, because you've asked for such a short period of time, you're saying, look, I think I've got something of value. I just want to run it by you. Do you have two minutes? There's, who can turn that down? Mm. You know, and you say it succinctly, you say it eloquently. What's wrong with that? Mm. You know, you, hi, I potentially have something of value to you. Do you have two minutes? Because nobody can really turn that down unless they're a complete chump. Cause you're just, you're no threat. You're not asking yeah. for much apart from a few minutes of time. And then at that point, you say, okay. Look, we're we're looking at this area, mm. or we made a breakthrough in this area, or you know, our our insight is X. Um, mm. Just wanted to run this by: is this something that is a real driver for you? Is this a concern? Whatever it might be, but that insight, that top line thing, has to be so macro that the only reply can be yeah, kind of, or yeah. yes, absolutely. So the first statement has to be an utter no brainer. Mm. So. Um, you know, let's, you know, let's take, you know, the, the startup ecosystem in Europe, um, that, you know, funding options for founders have grown exponentially over the last few years. Would you say that to be true? Well, we all know it to be true. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing or a good thing, but you're going to say, yeah. Yeah. And then at that point, say, okay, Carlos, fantastic. That's really, it's really interesting you say that. Other people we've spoken to or our research suggests to date that A, B, and C are some of the things that, other people are doing to, you know, ensure that they win or add more value to founders, however you want to phrase it. And you say, and then you would go, like, is that more or less how you see it, Carlos? Or how would you describe it? And so what I'm doing there is I'm positioning you as an expert. Mm -hmm. And then I'm asking you to give your description. Like I'm being really open. I'm not asking a yes or no or anything. I'm just saying, how, what, do you, what do you think? Kind of. And at that point, we're engaging. And crucially, we're engaging in an area that I've suggested. So yeah. clearly that's going to link down towards my product or service or my yeah. guess where I might have some value. And I'm positioning you in such a way that you're going to be keen to share. Now, at this point, it's really important 
as a person reaching out to be honest with yourself. You know, do I now get the sense that I can really help this person? Yes or no? Now, because if it's no, you know, you've got to be just as um, brutal. brutal with your time as you are, you know, with, you know, someone else's. So you can't, you, if, if there's no value to be had there, you go, don't just chase it because somebody wants to engage you. Say, but well, no, actually, Carlos, you know, given what you said, it do, I, don't, I don't see an alignment here or something like that. And this is quite interesting because the moment you start pulling something away from someone, they're kind of like, well, but what was it? You know, you say, well, you know, the, the thing we were thinking about is as follows, or the area we're looking to add value to is so, is, is like this, and you'll notice I've still not talked about the product. And you, you're never talking about the product. You might say, for example, um, okay, so you know we're True North, we're a business development and sales consultancy. We uh, work with high growth organisations such as X, Y, and Z. We work across kind of media and digital space with A, a B, and C. Um, this is broadly how we work. So they know who you are and where your area of focus is. But I'm not going to start pitching a product. I'm never going to call a senior decision maker up and say, would you like to buy a training workshop, for example, because it's utterly commoditized. Whereas if I call them up and I speak to them about our understanding is that um, there's a lack of trust in media agencies right now because of kind of uh, uh, findings in about um, non-transparent trading, so on and so forth. You know, is this a, a challenge for you or how are you responding to that challenge? Then that's a high level conversation. Then you just, you can eventually link back and you will have had to, you'll have thought through before you get on the phone where the link is between those high level potential business challenges and where your solution might fit in. And this is why it's a kind of minimal viable pitch because we're forming it both in terms of what the actual product might be, the final outcome, but also how we should describe it. Because my view of the value I bring to your business could be completely different to your view of the value I bring to your mm. business. So if I think the way I'm going to help you is, I don't know, get more founders through the door, um, it could be that that's not your problem at all. Your problem is actually having better filtering or people who are further upstream or, or you know, your challenge is making sure that you know, founder teams are more balanced. So, but I don't know that. Mm. I need to ha get into a position fast whereby you and I are seemingly peers now, and this, this becomes really interesting, is if I'm going to pitch you, for example, Carlos, not that I am, uh, uh, I also need to think, well, who are the other people who like Carlos? So I, I create kind of a category, uh, a group of people, right? These are all the different um, uh, people in this space. These are all the people that job description. These are all their contacts. Now, after I speak to you, you might actually say, do you know what? This is of no value to me. You might even be incredibly rude. It might be, in some people's estimation, a mm. negative conversation. I say no, I will have got information from you. You will have said some stuff that then feeds into what I say to the next person when I share my insights, when I'm framing, you know, other people have suggested these are some of the things and that will what you, that I'll build on that. I'll say, well, actually I was just speaking to Carlos and blah, 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 blah. And then the next person I speak to gives me more richness. And then the next person gives me more richness. And by the time I'm speaking to the fourth or fifth person on the list, I sound like a category expert. Yeah. And that's not because I'm brainy. That's just called inside selling. Anybody can do it. Yeah. Um, so we, um, so if just kind of pedal back a little bit. So after I joined The Guardian and was selling garden shed ads, I was fortunately all right at it. So uh, within a year, I was promoted. And at that time, um, The Guardian was well aware that um, 
a key kind of pillar in its revenue was falling through through the floor, which was uh, recruitment advertising. Mm-hmm. What they had created a, around recruitment advertising in the kind of 30 preceding years was editorial in certain verticals, so like media, technology, public sector, education. And so they said, well, we've got this great readership, we've got this authority, we've got this credibility, but the way in which you monetize it is falling away. Um, so they gave free reign to a group of us to go and sell anything in that space. So that becomes um, really interesting because we had uh, autonomy to call up anybody and sell anything and then had the full disposal of the resource of the Guardian to make that thing happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at first, you know, that's quite daunting. But over time, you actually then get to just create things that interest you. And you might be doing that in partnership with editorial colleagues who you work well with and see how you can benefit from, uh, you know, their expertise. Um, or it might be that, you know, you have a personal interest. So um, it, it, in my case, uh, one example is I had a piece of incoming business uh, with the design consultancy, the innovation consultancy, IDEO. After working with them, I found what they did in their thought process like truly fascinating. And so I was thinking, well, I want to do some more stuff in this space. So... I figured out what would be interesting, where was there a need, uh, service design seemed interesting, so I started calling up service design agencies, I got in, tra- in touch with a service design trade body and I launched an editorial product all around service design. That happened because I needed to hit a target, a financial target, and the Guardian couldn't care less what I did, so long as it you know, was obviously right for the readership, yeah. um, and, but what, I had the full freedom to create something that interested me. Cool. And so then how long were you in The Guardian for there in, in total? Six years. Six years. And and then when you left, is that when you went straight into what you're doing today? That's right. Um, Do you want to walk us through kind of like the thinking behind today? So, you know, True North is, but how you were engaging in the last maybe couple of months at The Guardian where you were thinking about the ideas that would eventually become your business and then how you started piecing together the, the pedagogy of it. Okay. So I think the pedagogy bit probably happened about two years down the line. So the first part of kind of exiting the Guardian was much more around, um, if, you know, to be really kind of honest about it, is I got to a point where I, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I, the next level up that I was being offered didn't interest me. And that was odd because I'd been asking for it, which obviously flags up there's a problem. Um, and so off the back of that, it seemed clear that the best way to figure out what you wanted to do was to, to go and consult, go and, go and see what was out there. And so that, that led to the formation of uh, True North. Um, initially, what we did was, you know, uh, through, through Seacamp, we I started doing some mentoring and then that kind of built some network and I started to pick up clients and then I went back into the media uh, area as well and so went back into kind of training former colleagues at The Guardian, which was in itself you know, quite politically charged. Going back to train former colleagues is a, a, a challenge. Um, but through that that period, what I was seeing was whether you were working with startup founders, whether you're working with a small agency, whether you were working with experienced salespeople, the, the challenges, the sales challenges were practically all the same. Um, and so the formation of the what became kind of the true selling method um, was the thought that you really needed to give people a holistic view 
of what it is to run the whole sale, one. Um, and that if you could, um, I suppose, take an approach that if, if you've got something that you can simplify enough so that somebody who is not an expert benefits from it, then that by its kind of, by its nature is going to be a value to, to people who are experienced. Mm. So, um, that, that, again, from the design thing that was interesting, it's kind of, ex, uh, it's called inclusive design. So if you design a telephone that works for, um, somebody who's very old or, you know, has, has a disability, actually that phone through that inclusive design mm. might well be better for everybody. And so the approach was, well, if, we can get the core tenets of what it is to sell and influence well across to people who aren't experienced sellers, then the approaches taken will quite logically be of benefit to people who are. And we've proven that to be the case. So the, the initial kind of question we posed ourselves was, how do you get people who are busy generalists, like founders, or in the case of media, it might be a media planner, um, to to sell well, to engage with their customers well. And that meant that we went back through kind of, you know, what is great consultative selling? What are the, the ways to do that? What is great kind of influence? What are the ways to do that? And most importantly, what can we strip out? And once we've kind of brought down, well, these are the key things that people need to do well. So what are the key things? What, what, what are the key things? Um, so I feel like it's like a big build up. Okay, okay, okay. So, so the key mindset for me yeah it shocked me immensely coming out of um working i suppose in a more corporate environment to working with startups was to see that people's mindset going into sales meetings was completely wrong just getting people to see that if you can help the person in front of you you will in turn help yourself so that is the right mindset and but you can't tell somebody that um you need to create an environment where somebody kind of has that light bulb moment. Mm. So that, that, again, a huge focus of ours was how do we create experiences for people? You know, the way we do it is through workshops, whereby they own that key piece of learning. If somebody goes away from a workshop and doesn't learn how to question better, doesn't learn how to prepare better, doesn't learn how to do any of those things that are really vitally important, it doesn't bother me if they get their mindset right. Because if you go from going into a meeting thinking, I need to sell this thing, I need to push my products, blah, 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 to actually, I'm just going to see if I can help Carlos. Mm. You will improve no end. You will get better results. So that's such a fundamental thing. And in our, in our view, in our estimation as we're putting true selling together was um, that is the equal of process. Everybody gets hung up on, you know, you know, how do you prospect? How do you do this? How do you do that? Well, that stuff's all important. But if when you get in the room, um, you'd, you're not trying to do the right things, you, your conversion numbers are going to go through the floor. They're going to be terrible. So mindset, absolutely. Mindset's number one. And then the next one? So I'd say mindset is equal of process, and mm -hmm. process has to be simple. Um, there are um, well-known, uh, proven approaches to um, what we can broadly call consultative selling. Um, and so, you know, consultative selling since about the 1970s has been, you know, the key approach to, you know, how you, how you, you sell well or you sell further upstream or you sell kind of bigger enterprise deals. Um, in 1987, you had, um, the publication of Spin Selling, uh, with Neil Rackham and that showed people an approach to sales, which was about asking four different types of questions. So about the status quo, the S of spin, about the problem, the P of spin, 
I, the implication of you know, not solving that problem, and then what they called N needs payoff, which is much more, you know, it's a value-based or a solution-centered question, but if they'd said value, it would have spelled SPIV, which would have been a bit rubbish. Mm. Um, so that informed a lot of um, how people have sold um, consultatively for quite some time, certainly as I was coming up through sales. And then more recently, after the last recession, kind of 2008, 2009, um, something came out called the Challenger Sale. And what they had done there was they wanted to look at, well, who succeeded at selling through the recession? And what were the things that stood out for, you know, what were the characteristics of a salesperson who succeeded through a recession? And they, I mean, without kind of um, doing a great disservice to their research, found the following. Um, salespeople who educated their prospects who um, tailored stuff for their prospects and who challenged their prospects thinking, uh, lo and behold, they were the ones who, irrespective of how the market was reacting, were able to create demand and sell things. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, uh, salespeople who relied um, purely on relationships, um, you know, they were um, at the whims of the market. They couldn't create demand and so they, they, they didn't succeed. So we looked at those models and other models and thought, right, a lot of that stuff is vitally important. But if I'm going to train somebody in a short period of time how to sell fast and need them to come away with the key tenants of the mindset and the process, what can we give them that just gives them the key fundamentals so they're more likely to get a prospect through the sales process? And so we created what we call the true selling steps. And the focus in that was firstly around you know, how you can empathize with somebody. So, and what we're looking to do there is, you know, how you can prepare for a meeting, how you can prepare for a call, more likely to be aligned with that person. So most people, before they go to a meeting, will, you know, look at, um, you know, Charlie app or, you know, Crystal Nose or, you know, LinkedIn or any of those myriad of ways you can research somebody before you go and see them. What they typically fail to do is turn that into an outcome. And the outcome, very similar to what we were discussing earlier, is typically a, a question or a statement or something that is more likely to be relevant to that person to create that trust, to create kind of that, that authority, that credibility. So we focused on giving people a simple thing to do where in five minutes you can go from not being aligned with somebody, not knowing who somebody is, to narrowing the odds, and it's important we realize this, that sales is all about narrowing the odds. It's not black and white. Just because you do something really well doesn't mean somebody's going to buy from you. Mm. Um, to narrow the odds in your favor, to start off the conversation as a peer, to start off the conversation where you're not justifying yourself from that point onwards. Yeah. So mindset number one. Second, just getting people preparing correctly to give themselves a chance. After that, it's just getting people to know what they're actually trying to achieve when they're on the call. I mean, a lot of people, once they're on the call and actually somebody wants to engage with them, they're so pleased that somebody wants to engage them in a yes. cold environment, they don't know what they're trying to do next. So you need to give people who are trying to sell, um, both experienced people and you know founders who might be trying to do it for the first time, almost a map of, all right, well, Carlos and I are in the same place right now. How do I take him to the next stage? What is Where is the next place on the map? And once we're both there, how do I ensure Carlos is in the same place as me? And how do I get to the next step and the next step? And that sounds kind of processy, but we have to kind of keep that really human. So the first thing is, is can I just find out what Carlos's objectives are? And quite simply, you know, if you've opened well enough, you can just ask. 
and then you just have to play it back to them. Mm. And once you're doing that, you should be in a place where the two of you are agreed that yeah, that's actually what we're trying to we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And then from there, right? Well, how are you trying to achieve it? Can we influence the strategy? If that person achieves that strategy, critically, what will they get from it? So if you grow your market share by 5%, what will that mean to you? What will that mean to the business? What will that mean to your department? You know, can you quantify the value of the outcome? Yeah. Sounds very processy and dull, but you need to know what to do next. And every step in itself is very simple. The difficulty to be good at selling is knowing which order to kind of layer simple steps. Um, where what we found looking at many methodologies out there is that they were quite naturally complex because they were for experienced salespeople. They were for people who were trying to close a huge enterprise deal. Whereas if you're trying to give something to somebody who hasn't done this before, you need to take all that complexity out and say, look, can you just find out their objectives? Yes. Can you agree so that you both are absolutely clear that that's the yeah. case? Can you prioritize those objectives? Yes. Can you get a sense of severity of those objectives? It's almost like a simple tick list. Um, and But just knowing that you just ask the question, if at any time you find that you're talking about yourself and your product, then you are wasting everybody's time. You know, nobody is interested in anyone, you know, but themselves, really. Yeah. Um, that might sound a bit harsh, but if you engage somebody in a business conversation, what they're interested in is, will this help me? And yeah. if you can help somebody, there's a good chance that you're going to close the deal. You're going to make something happen. If yeah. you can't, you should know to walk away. Yeah. So it's interesting because everything that you've touched on right now, is kind of like where the rubber hits the road in terms of the sales process. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had other um, sales uh, specialists on the podcast, and you know, we've talked a little bit about building a sales organization. We've talked a little bit about managing pipelines, and now what we're really talking about here, like what the true true north selling uh, process is like, is dealing with the actual conversation that mm -hmm. will eventually become a conversation of yay or nay. Yeah, look, execution's everything. You know, it's, <laughs> you just, it's difficult to make things simple. Once you've boiled down and made something really, really simple and proven that it works, you just have to get really good at executing against it. Yeah. It is hard to speak to somebody, whether you've been introduced to them by somebody um, who gives you credibility, whether you meet them at a conference, whatever the environment is, whether you know, you've been introduced to them by one of your wonderful investors. If you don't know how to take the, them through a series of steps to where you're trying to get them, which is you know, a piece of business and rebooking, you know, quantifying the value of delivering that stuff, then, you know, it doesn't matter how great your pipeline is. You know, it doesn't matter how well organized your sales team is. I'm sure you might have a wonderful messaging app so you can all communicate with each other. I don't care. Can you get somebody to see that you will help them? That's innately human. It's really actually difficult to execute on but the premise of what you're trying to do at each stage is in, in very very simple okay this is a bit of a biased question because yep. you might be tempted to answer it with a little bit of, of focus on what we just talked about mm -hmm. but maybe you you'll, you'll be unbiased huh. when you walk in and you deal and you as part of your consultative process you're dealing with teams that have salespeople. Do you generally find, if you could break it down to percentages, that the failures of successful uh, sales teams is stemming from either A, lack of clear goals, B, lack of clear organization within the sales team so that it's clear how to prioritize jobs and how to organize like 
uh, lead times and how to uh, weight the pipeline accordingly? Or is it C, literally the things that we've just been talking about for the last 20 minutes, which is the nitty gritty how people talk. So when you go to these sales team uh, that you go uh, as part of, of True North, do you find that it's a combination of three? Is there one that's particularly worse? I mean, these presumably a lot of these companies are hired people that are competent. So to some extent, I mean, you would hope that the option C is something that they're already somewhat competent. But I'm just curious, like what, what your experience has shown. So clearly the way in which the organization is set up is super important. So, you know, if departments don't interact well together, if the products are no good, um, you know, if you're in a market that's shrinking, all those things make things hard. If, um, as is often the case, um, you have internal pressures to sell the new element of the portfolio, you know, something we deal with constantly, which is our bosses are telling us you must sell this new thing. Mm. And that pressure is coming internally. That leads to conversations where people are pushing products on clients, which doesn't help anybody. Mm -hmm. So often organizations um, are guilty of setting up environments where they're not likely to succeed. But a lot of that's driven by the market where they need to be in innovating. And if they've invested in something, they need to prove why they invested in it and so forth. Mm. But you say you would hope that these experienced people would be great at running these conversations. And it's not to say that they're not great at running part of those conversations. I think many of them are, um, but what we find is many business professionals um, who have to sell, whether that's selling internally or selling externally, or you know they describe themselves as the salesperson, mm -hmm. will be pretty good at some elements of what you need to do to run a valuable conversation with somebody, mm -hmm. um, but not great at everything. And often, because they're pretty good at it, um, they can kind of wing it and they can kind of get by. We all, I mean, if I, which I do, I will come out of sales meetings and I'll look at what I've done and I'll regularly see that, you know, because I evaluate my performance, I think, I didn't do that or I didn't do this. And that's quite normal. You know, nobody's a robot and it would be terrible if they were. Mm. Um, what we look to do is to create an environment where people can reflect on that, work on live deals so that they're actually going to, generate ROI, that they're what they're going to work on is relevant to them, create an environment where they don't feel patronized. If you're dealing with somebody who's been selling for 10, 15, 20 years or something, they know their clients back to front, they know their environment back to front. You can't just say, hey, you should ask better questions. You need to create an environment where they're doing that for themselves. A lot of what we do is we flip it around. We get people to see what it's like to be the buyer. Uh, you'll have seen uh, when we come in and do sessions here at Seat Camp and on boarding week, something we do is we send people out to buy stuff. And what we're looking to do through that is we're getting people in groups of three or four to go and buy something they've never bought before as a group, you know, not, not very expensive things, normally food or drink, and then deconstruct the decisions, deconstruct the activities that they went through. And they begin to see that um, what they did is full of um, wonderful kind of humanity that led them to do, you know, lots of things they didn't expect, mm. such as, you know, almost everybody. So we normally give them a brief to do something innovative. Almost everybody goes to something close by or something they're familiar with or somewhere where there's a large assortment. Um, you know, it's incredibly important people know that. And then they'll see that when it comes through to the kind of the assessment of was the decision a good decision, um, there will be a kind of divergence of views mm -hmm. and also they'll see about all the interaction that goes on in that group of people. Mm -hmm. um, 
putting experienced salespeople through that is really important, particularly ones who might fall more into that relationship seller category. Mm-hmm. Um, they will see that actually, oh my God, I only ever engage with uh, Dave, say, at my client. Mm-hmm. And there are these three, four other, f- five other people who are clearly influencing everything that's going on. And I've got no oversight of them. And I'm just trusting Dave's ability to mm-hmm. influence these people, which is, you know, ludicrous. Mm-hmm. So, but we can't go in there and say, hey, what you need to do is, you know, better control the DMU, as people call it, a decision-making unit. Yeah. Who's going to listen to that? That's not interesting. We need to create an experience where somebody takes ownership for that and does it in a way that you know, really is theirs. And then they tell us, well, based on that, this is what I should do. Obviously, we're creating experiences that tie back into what we expect them to say. And yeah. that's our process. But um, I, I would say it's... What we look to do is give everybody the fundamentals of sales and influence, of consultative sales and influence, but to do it in a way that they're actually going to take it on board. Mm-hmm. So live deals, relevant. Makes op- sense. Yeah. So maybe maybe this is a good point for you to maybe, I mean, you've talked, you pitched True North throughout throughout the conversation, but... Maybe this is officially where you can... Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can't help myself. This is officially where you get to say, like, this is what you get. Like, if if somebody is listening to this and thinking, you know what? I see the value of this bit of the sales process. I probably appreciate the fact that I'm a bit blunt in my way of handling these things. I probably am not self-aware enough about how I'm going about it. And uh, this guy, David, sounds all right. How do I get a hold of him? What do, what do I get? Like, what, what, what's the package? Um, so there's a, a variety, uh, but typically what we do is we work with um, around a, a dozen or so people. There's uh, myself and a colleague, and we, in advance of the workshop, um, people supply information on deals they're working on. Um, and so we use that to illustrate key points throughout the day. On the day, we get people to work through those key tenets of how do you research, how do you question, what's it like to be the buyer, based on that, what is the full process to get somebody from, I don't know you, to I'd like to do that again. How do you go from understanding somebody's objectives to suggesting things in such a way that you're not going to be rejected? As in, okay, great, those are your objectives, I've got the solution. No. As in, all right, well, what if somebody could do this? What if somebody could do that? Would it help you if? And co-create with somebody. That way, you're co-creating the potential solution, which obviously includes a potential kind of commercial arrangement. That way, when you finally suggest something, the client has ownership of it. So it's something you've done together. Um, so we take people through that full process. We get people all the way to the end where we show them how they can see that their deal isn't happening in isolation, that they need to de-risk it, they need to, particularly for startups, uh, they need to understand what else is going on in that business, who else is involved in the decision, how they can make it useful and helpful to the person they're now working with, their champion, to make this stuff happen. So again, it's a, a lot of that's mindset, a lot of that's tone, um, but it, most importantly, it's all proven to work. So further to that, after the, the workshop, about six weeks down the line, we catch up with everybody for a kind of one-to-one coaching session. And in that, apart from ensuring that those learnings have been embedded, we're able to kind of measure what success that's had for them. So we're able to demonstrate uh, that deal closed, that deal advanced. So obviously, you know, we're always looking to show people they get their money back yeah. and a lot more. And that that rigor and that approach is, is something obviously people value. Excellent. Um, maybe to wrap things up, 
What books, if any, do you recommend for people to explore as they are going through this process of maybe not just rethinking the sales organization, but also rethinking about how to organize the way that they talk to a customer? Um, one that comes to the top of my mind is to sell as human, yep. um, which is, is pretty good, uh, but maybe you have others. So that's that's a good book, and um, I think Pink's brilliant actually. At and you know, in his title, you know, uses the word human, and that's really important because it moves it away from the whole kind of process. Um, I, I would suggest people read uh, Selling to the C-Suite. It's a pretty good book. It's quite uh, quite pragmatic, which um, and quite execution-led, which I'm a huge believer in. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, have a look at Spin Sales if you want, have a look at The Challenger Sale, those are all, all, all good books. But beyond that, or what I would suggest beyond reading any book about sales is if you want to get good at selling, before you go in the room, just genuinely have a good think about how can I help this person? What is it like to be that person? What drives them? What matters to them? What do they care about? It's just a guess, don't have to be right, and that's going to improve your chances massively. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, David. Uh, this has been an amazing eye-opening chat on the sort of bit of the sales process that is often ignored because there's other bits which are usually at a little bit more high level, but this is really where, where things matter the most. So thanks for joining us and until next time, guys. Bye.